0: Host Nick Giacomus, and today I'm speaking with Professor Kent Barrage. Dr. Barrage is a professor of psychology and neuroscience. At the University of Michigan, and his lab studies questions related to, you know, how pleasure is generated in the brain, what the neural bases of reward, wanting, and liking are, how the brain motivation systems work, how appetite is controlled, and what causes addiction. So we talked a lot about the brain and psychological states like liking something or wanting something. We talked about things like appetite and natural rewards. So how is the brain wired up to motivate an animal to seek out food? How is the hunger state of an animal? able to modulate how much it likes or wants to get food. How does that relate to things like addiction and the circuitry that's involved in drug addiction and how all those things sort of relate to each other within the brain? So if you're interested in addiction and addictive drugs, if you're interested in how the brain generates motivation and learns to assign value to things in the environment to satisfy the body's needs, whether it's hunger or thirst or any of the other basic instinctive drives that animals have, this will be a really interesting episode for you. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing on this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. The simplest and easiest way to support the podcast is to sign up for my free weekly newsletter at mindandmatter.substack.com. On my Substack, you'll also get access to my long-form writing, which integrates a lot of the subjects I cover across different episodes of the podcast. And you'll receive updates and other interesting content related to the things that I talk about on the Mind and Matter podcast. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Kent Barrage. Today's show is brought to you in part by dosist an all-natural canvas company specializing in dose controlled canvas products made with plant-based ingredients to learn more about dosist their products and where they are available please visit their website through the link in the episode description and what is your lab study and what are you known for
1: well we're really Is Interested in understanding, liking and wanting things of various kinds of rewards, natural foods and drinks and other natural rewards, but also drugs of abuse and social and cognitive rewards. Um, We're interested in emotion in general and motivation in general, but liking and wanting are probably what we're best known for.
0: And so... You know, I think everyone has an intuitive notion of what it means to like and to want something. And these two things are intertwined. They go together, right? Typically, you like things that you want. So let's maybe paint a picture for people of of what's going on in, say, a scenario where maybe I just ate a meal and it was a normal meal at a normal time of day or something. I'm satisfied. I'm full. And then for some reason, let's say I go two or three days without eating. So I get really hungry, I can't find food, and then I encounter that, that same meal again after a couple of days of not eating. Walk us through what's going on phenomenologically and in the brain a little bit in terms of you know as my hunger builds and I'm searching for food and I finally find it, and then I eat it that second time. How is that second experience different from the first experience and what's really going on to account for the change in the two different meals that I eat?
1: Well, when you're hungry, your brain's mesolimbic system is primed to respond to food cues all around you. So maybe walking down the street and the smell of food hits you, and now you really would like to eat, and maybe you'd like to eat that particular food that you just smelled. Um, this, These food cues turn us, sort of tempt us when we're in states of hunger. And if we taste it, we'll like it. We want and like it. I have to admit, when I started in the field, I thought liking and wanting were basically just two words for the same process. Um, We had to change our mind along the way. If you taste of food, just one little taste of food, it can prime even more appetite. So you may have this cocktail peanut phenomenon where you eat one to be polite, but now you'd kind of like another peanut. Um, That can prime you. But as you go on and eat more and start to trigger post-ingestive satiety cues, then the pleasure can decline a little bit over the course of a meal. And if you're really stuffing yourself at a a major feast, you may at the end just not want to see another piece of food. Um, So you can change, absolutely change both how you like and want the food um, based on your state. Now go for a couple more days and it may start to appeal again. So it primes you again.
0: And so so when I eat that second meal after I'm really hungry, you know, it'll probably taste different. It'll be the same, you know, basic flavor profile, but I'll like it even more because I'm really hungry the second time I encounter it compared to the first time. So what what's actually happening in the brain and, and why is this happening that that the tastes are going to be more pleasurable or be more pronounced in how I feel them?
1: Well, it's a phenomenon that was recognized by Aristotle. So it goes way back thousands of years. But it the the a modern term for it is allieesthesia. This was coined by Michel Cabanac, a French neuroscientist and psychiatrist working in in Lyon uh, originally um, around 1970. And he sort of pioneered the scientific study of pleasure and changes in pleasure that were induced by changes in physiological state. So the, change, the pleasure of food can absolutely vary depending on your hunger and satiety and familiarity. Um, the pleasure of temperatures you on a hot on a hot day, you might enjoy a cold swim, a cool pool, but on a cold winter day here in Michigan, you'd probably prefer a hot shower. Um, this is, changes in the pleasantness of thermal temperature sensation happen to And lots of lots of pleasurable sensations can be modulated by physiological state. This is aliesthesia. It's a word that means change in sensation, although it's really just a change in the pleasure of the sensation, other parts of the sensation stay the same and stable.
0: And so you mentioned that there, there apparently is this difference between liking and wanting something. So even though even though these th- two things go together often, they're not the same thing. So what are maybe some examples where an organism wants something it doesn't like or likes something it doesn't want?
1: Right. Well, To kind of recapitulate, I I originally did think that liking and wanting were the same. And in neuroscience, especially rising as a theme in the 1980s, was originally the notion that pleasure in the brain was mediated by brain dopamine systems, mesolimbic dopamine systems. And it's still sort of synonymous and famous for for, for pleasure and rewards um, even today. The notion that it was specifically the pleasure of rewards, this was an idea championed by Roy Wise, Um, who was then in Montreal at Concordia University. And he had many clever experiments where he would mildly impair dopamine function in rats, usually, um, with a a drug that blocks dopamine receptors, neuroleptic or antipsychotic drugs that block D2-type dopamine receptors. And he would just give a mild to moderate dose of this. If you give a strong dose, you suppress all behavior and motivation. But if you give a mild dose, what he found... Was that the rats would pursue initially the rewards of all kinds just as much as they had were ordinarily would. So if they'd learned to run in a, a maze for food, they'd run eagerly for food the first time. If they were working for, say, a brain stimulation reward, you know, electrode rewards in the lateral hypothalamus that turn on dopamine systems um, if they if the rat presses a lever, they would do that originally is, with enthusiasm too. But if you let them keep doing this and experiencing the rewards under the dopamine blocking drug effects, what he found was the gradual diminishment. So they started to cease to persist. They would just sort of give it up. And this looked a lot like what would happen if you had just turned off the reward midway while they were working. If you had turned it off, they gradually extinguish. It's called extinguish because they're not getting um, the reward anymore. They'd extinguish their, their working for those rewards and their consumption. And he thought the pimazide, the, these neuroleptic drugs that blocked dopamine, were doing the same thing, causing this extinction mimicry, he called it. And the best way to explain it, he proposed, was it was like extinguishing like removing the reward basically it was removing the pleasure of the reward and they were finding that even now they were still getting the food or they're still getting the electrode it was no longer pleasant so they gradually abandoned it this was the dopamine pleasure hypothesis based upon these dopamine what he called anhedonia experiments where the drugs seemed to drain away the pleasure of all of these rewards and i was totally convinced there was a number of clever details that he um embedded into these experiments to rule out some alternatives, like was it just impairing their motor ability to to move and pursue the rewards? No, it wasn't just that. Um, It seemed really specific. So they didn't want these rewards anymore, apparently because they didn't like them anymore. That was the inference and it seemed convincing. I actually got into this issue by in a collaboration with Roy Wise, because my lab here at Michigan, I had just recently started in the mid eighties, Um, was looking at pleasure in the brain from a slightly different way, in a different method, rather than ask individuals to pursue and work for rewards. We were using uh, a method that's kind of similar to what human parents have used for eons to ask their newborn babies, do you like the taste of foods that we eat? By giving them just a little sample of the taste and watching what they do. You know, if it's sweet, it's nice, the baby may sort of like, "Mm, mm, mm," and swallow. And if it's a, a bitter taste, the baby will gape, sort of a triangular opening of the mouth, um, scrunch its eyes, shake its head, wave its arms. Um, and this is a difference between liking and disliking. Well, we were doing this with rats and looking at brain mechanisms that might change liking and disliking because it turns out that rats, which are omnivores, they like sweet and fatty foods just like we do and they don't like bitter foods. They have some of these same facial expressions if you infuse a taste solution into their mouths. Roy Wise called me in the mid eighties and said, why don't we collaborate? Um, And he sent a graduate student from Montreal down here to Ann Arbor in Michigan. And we did a collaborative experiment where we gave his neuroleptic dopamine blocking drugs to rats just before we infused sugar solutions into their mouths. And we expected their liking reactions to go down. Um, That would be anhedonia and then just one more little piece of evidence on the enormous pile of dopamine is pleasure evidence that Roy Weiss had accumulated. That was my hope that we'd find that. We didn't find that. The drugs didn't change the facial expressions of liking at all. And uh, I thought, well, we just maybe did the experiment wrong. It, It was my first experiment with dopamine blocking drugs. It was the graduate student's first experiment on these facial reactions. And maybe we just did something wrong along the way. So I repeated this experiment several times in my lab and used different dopamine blocking drugs. I always got the same result. It didn't change the liking reactions. And at that point, I thought, well, maybe drugs just aren't strong enough. Um, We need to do something stronger to prove this dopamine pleasure hypothesis. So what I did was to collaborate with my colleague here at Michigan, Terry Robinson, who was looking very closely at brain dopamine systems. And he was looking especially um, at their role if he lesioned the brain dopamine system, a selective lesion that could eliminate brain dopamine but preserve every other neuron intact. These are called six hydroxy dopamine lesions. Six hydroxy dopamine is a neurotoxin. If you do a micro injection of this neurotoxin into the medial forebrain bundle around the hypothalamus where dopamine neurons are sending their axons up towards their targets, you can hit all of those dopamine neurons and this toxin just kills the dopamine containing neurons, leaves other neurons intact. We eliminated 98%, 99% of dopamine fibers going up to the nucleus accumbens and striatum with these neurotoxin injections. This creates a sort of severe Parkinson's disease like state in the rats. They will never voluntarily eat. They'll never voluntarily drink. We can keep them in good health by giving them artificial meals and hydration the way you and I would be fed if we were in an intensive care in the hospital. Um, and we would do this. And then we could ask them now, finally, are, is liking for sweetness gone? And the answer was, no, it was absolutely normal. They're liking reactions to the sweetness. Um, we asked, could they still learn new likes and dislikes? So we would take us a, a new sweet taste that they had never tasted before. Um, saccharin and polycose mixed together. It's, it's kind of distinct from sugar, but the rats like it. We would pair that new sweet taste just three times with nausea induced by a lithium chloride injection. This creates a learned taste aversion in normal rats and mm-hmm. Many people develop learned taste aversions for new tastes that are paired with nausea. Um, It creates a disgust sense to that taste subsequently if the brain is processing correctly. And it did. In these rats who had virtually no dopamine, maybe just 1% to 2% of their natural dopamine remaining, they still had new normal likes and they could learn new dislikes or new likes. Um, It all seemed normal, despite their massive deficits of not reaching out and not eating voluntarily, not pursuing any reward at all. Um, And we were left scratching our heads and saying, well, how can we explain this? We thought this was going to eliminate dopamine as pleasure, and these pleasure reactions are still the same. That's when we began to think, well, what if dopamine mediated the wanting for these liked rewards, but wasn't necessarily for the liking per se? What if the brain kind of separated these sides of the same coin, these two words that we thought were the same psychological process, the brain might be telling us, no, they're actually different psychological processes. That was the beginning. Um, there were many subsequent experiments that kind of prompted further. We would turn on dopamine and see, could we turn on wanting without turning on liking? The answer was yes, we could um, in many cases, many ways. Um, that was the beginnings of that hypothesis.
0: I see. So the idea originally and you still, you still see this uh, believed in, in popular science a lot these days, was pretty much dopamine equals pleasure. So whenever you taste something you like, or, or you get a drug that you like that makes you feel good, that's mediated by dopamine. What you're saying is they did these experiments back in the day. They were able to pharmacologically block dopamine in the brain, and animals seem to be less motivated to get things that they liked. The idea was that they must the liking part of it, the way, the, the goodness that they feel presumably is lower. But then you did these clever experiments where you can destroy all of the dopamine neurons or nearly all of them. That destroys their motivation to go and find things they like. But then when you put something that they like the taste of right in their mouth, even though they're not motivated to go and get it themselves, they still respond behaviorally with the same way. They still seem to like the taste, even though they're not motivated to work with it.
1: That's right. they still show all of the same facial liking smack, lip smacking you know lip licking their lips that they would if they if it was absolutely normal. And that was such a disappointment to me originally. Um, it wasn't the result I wanted, but it was the result that the observations seemed to force upon us at least as a possibility.
0: And so you know it's interesting you said, you know, rats and mice will have these facial expressions and infant children will have them. And so it, does that mean that, you know, some of the uh, some of the things that we experience in terms of what we like and what we don't like to taste are hardwired and, and innately specified?
1: Well, I think they are. These are brain systems that evolved originally eons ago, um, or dopamine neurons and some of the basic circuitry has been argued to be almost 600 million years old by some neuroscientists who say that the same dopamine systems might be found even in arthropods like insects and crustaceans um, to some extent. Now that's a controversial hypothesis, but it's very clear that in mammalian evolution, at least these are very ancient brain systems. um, We have them, rats have them, virtually all mammals have them, and they seem to be operating in similar ways in all of
0: Mm-hmm. And it makes sense, like that we would naturally like something sweet that has sugar in it because of the way that our metabolism works, right? These, those are going to signal things in the environment that have calories that we'll need, and so, so naturally, it makes sense that the brain would, uh, you know, create uh, a positive emotion, a feel-good emotion, to motivate us to get those things. Um, sort of the opposite with bitter things, but we can also learn to sort of overcome this, right? Like I remember being a kid and trying coffee at some point and thinking, oh, this is gross. Why does anyone drink it? Then as I got older and I was in college and I needed to wake up in the morning and go to class and everything, I learned to overcome that natural aversion to the bitter taste of the coffee and, and I learned to like it. So wh- what's going on there when an animal learns to like something it previously didn't like?
1: Well, we absolutely can learn new likes and dislikes for coffee, for alcoholic beverages, for some people, even tobacco smoke. Um, noxious. All of these originally, but uh, learned wants and learned likes can definitely happen. The reason this can happen is because the liking for something—it's never inherent in the physical stimulus itself completely. Sweet, sweet things are liked ordinarily, but they can become disgusting if they're paired with illness in this in this way. Um, and disgusting things can become liked. What's happening is that the brain has liking mechanisms, absolutely does. Um, turns out that dopamine is not the major linchpin in the liking mechanisms, but these liking mechanisms can come on and create, put sort of the liking gloss, this hedonic gloss on the taste of coffee. Um, they easily and naturally do it to the taste of sugar, but it's these systems coming on, these liking mechanisms that generate intense liking. Um, we call them hedonic hotspots in the brain, the ones we've found so far, they are putting the pleasure on it. So it's really a question of what's activating these mechanisms. They can learn to come on. Um, they can learn to not come on. That's the, the,
0: so, the work. So is it fair to say that you know we used to sort of equate dopamine with pleasure? That doesn't seem to be the way things work. Is it fair to say that dopamine is more to do with the motivation to, to- to do things and to behave and to go out and get things.
1: I think that's the best way to put it exactly. But but we ha- I have to admit, you know, dopamine is turned on by pleasures. So I mean, all kinds of sensory pleasures in animals and in humans for foods and drugs and sex and brain stimulation that is rewarding. Um, turns on these dopamine systems. And there's evidence in humans that even cognitive pleasures like listening to music for people who really enjoy music can turn on dopamine systems as well. Um, looking at the face of a loved one can turn on dopamine systems. Um, it's turned on by pleasures in so many situations. So it correlates with pleasure. Absolutely. The question is always just, is it also causing that pleasure or is it caused by the pleasure? And now it's causing the motivation for that pleasure. Um, that's the distinction that our results pushed us to initially.
0: I see. And for the hedonic component of this, the actual liking or the the pleasure that you feel when you you find something that you like, whether it's food or something else, is there like another transmitter system that does seem to be causally related to the liking part of it?
1: Yes, there is. Um, opioids, natural brain opioids like enkephalin and endorphin, can do it. Um, obviously, opiates and opioid drugs like heroin or fentanyl, um, can do it. They activate mu opioid receptors. And in particular locations of the brain, these mu opioid receptors, if they're activated, can cause pleasure liking, can intensify the liking. Now, it's not throughout the entire brain. And it's not even throughout the entire reward structure, say, like the nucleus accumbens is a famous reward structure. And within the nucleus accumbens, there is one little spot, a hedonic hotspot, that's about one-tenth of the total volume of the nucleus accumbens at the very front and sort of middle on both sides um, and top of the nucleus accumbens shell. This hedonic hotspot, if opioid stimulation is given to it inside their neurons that have these opioid receptors, this enhances the liking. So this will generate increases in liking. And if we eliminate this sort of thing, it can reduce the liking. Other neurotransmitters too, like endocannabinoids um, in the same hedonic hotspot, the sort of brain version of, of marijuana THC, um, neuro, neurotransmitters like anandamide, for example, can turn on liking in these same hedonic hotspots. There's a hedonic hotspot in the nucleus accumbens, about one tenth of its total volume. In the orbital frontal cortex, that's a part of our cortex just above the eyes, there's another hedonic hotspot, um, just a small zone of it, about, again, about 10, 20% of that orbital frontal cortex. There's another in the insula cortex, the sort of ont- tucked in on the sides of the brain, uh, the back of the frontal lobe but covered up by the temporal lobes. The insula has a hedonic hotspot. And there's a couple of depths sort of lower in the brain below the nucleus accumbens, like in the structure called the ventral pallidum um, that's especially important for pleasure and even one perhaps in the brain stem. So there's several of these hedonic hotspots, opioids, endocannabinoids, a couple of other neurotransmitters in them can turn on the, the liking. Dopamine never ever does. If we move out of the hedonic hotspots, if we give opioid stimulation, say to the 90% of the nucleus accumbens that isn't the hedonic hotspot, what that does is it turns on wanting for rewards, just like dopamine does, but it does not turn on the liking. So it's sort of a combination of opioids in the hotspot that intensify liking. The brain has kind of this restricted liking mechanisms, um, more massive wanting mechanisms. When liking does come on, say if we do stimulate a hedonic hotspot in the nucleus accumbens, it turns on the other hedonic hotspots, recruits them into co-activation. So they all come on sort of like a unanimous network. And if that happens, when that happens, that it causes the intense liking. If we disrupt that unanimous activation, um, then the liking isn't enhanced. So these are mechanisms that can give pleasure or take it away.
0: Mm -hmm. And so I suppose, you know, when we start talking about things like opioid receptors and other things, they are directly involved in the liking of things. They are distinct from, but but sort of working with, in a sense, the dopamine system that underlies the motivational side of this. So how do we start to think about addiction here? Uh, it would make sense that something like an opioid would be very pleasurable and euphoric, given what you just told us. So you know, wh- what's going on in the brain as you try something like an opioid or an addictive drug that you like, and then you proceed to a compulsive state where you are uh, constantly motivated to take this, even if... Ah, uh, the effects start to wear off in terms of how it feels.
1: Right. Well, all, all, opioids indeed are very pleasant drugs, and that's, of course, why people take them. Now, not everyone who takes them becomes compulsively addicted to these drugs. So, there's a dis- difference, a distinction between drug use and drug addiction. Um, it turns out that relatively a minority of people who are taking, say, cocaine or or heroin, um, will become compulsively addicted. Somewhere between 10% to 30%, depending on the drug and how it's taken, uh, these are the individuals who become compulsively addicted. So, the question for addiction is really about what's happening that makes those individuals who are disposed by genes and by other early environmental experiences and other considerations, what makes, what is the switch that flips basically within them to cause the addiction? Now, addiction theories in neuroscience throughout the 80s and 90s. We're really based mostly on the notion of withdrawal. You know, opioids can produce a strong withdrawal syndrome, of course. Um, alcohol can if a person's really dependent on alcohol, it can cause its withdrawal, can actually be fatal by inducing um convulsions that that can sometimes be fatal. So withdrawal can be very potent. Um, on the other hand, some drugs that are really quite addictive, like methamphetamine and cocaine, they produce at best only weak withdrawal syndromes compared to heroin or alcohol. Um, and even for the drugs, that yet they can be very addictive, these methamphetamine cocaine for the, for the particular individuals. And even for drugs like heroin or fentanyl, it's very famous that you can take people who want to give up their addiction, who want to give up the drug, keep them in a drug treatment center, get them through detoxification, get them through withdrawal, So withdrawal fades and leaves them behind. Then they go back into ordinary life and relapse again and again after months or even years of abstinence, but yet relapse, uh, find that irresistible at some point. So withdrawal is potent, but it may not be the essence of addiction. And this sort of relapse in the absence of withdrawal are kind of examples of, of that. It's not. Now... I stumbled into addiction neuroscience theory really with my colleague, Terry Robinson, because as we were developing this notion that maybe dopamine was more about wanting things than it was about liking things, Terry Robinson's lab here at Michigan was studying a different side of dopamine. And that is what happens if you take addictive drugs again and again, drugs like amphetamine. And it's famous that drugs do produce sort of down regulation of dopamine receptors and opioid receptors. That is, some of the receptors start to go away if a person's constantly taking drugs. And this is what can produce tolerance and contribute to withdrawal syndromes. Um, Some of that comes back if they stop. But there's also another thing that can happen in dopamine systems. Much of the withdrawal and tolerance goes away if a person stays off the drug for months, weeks, and months afterwards. But a second thing that can happen in, in dopamine systems, especially of some individuals who are predisposed to the second thing, is called neural sensitization. And what that means is that if, a, if the individual takes drugs again and again, especially if they sort of space this apart, so like taking weekend binges of the drug, but not so much every day during the week, um, spaced apart binge-like doses in vulnerable individuals create what's called neural sensitization of the dopamine systems. And what it looks like, what it, how you see it, is that the dopamine neurons that release dopamine when you take amphetamine or cocaine or other drugs, they start to release more dopamine on the 10th, say, time or the 20th time than they did on the first time, even though the dose of the drug is the same. So they're becoming hyper-responsive, hyper-reactive to the drug. The dopamine neurons change, they release more dopamine. Um, and the neurons they talk to that have dopamine receptors, they change and they can become hyperreactive. So the circuit kind of becomes hyperreactive to this dopamine influence. Now, it doesn't happen in everyone. Again, genes and other factors like stressful experiences previously can dispose one towards this. If it happens, though, if it happens in an individual, it tends to last long, long, long after, even after they stop taking the drug. It lasts about half a lifetime in a rat. Hmm. Um, in a person, it might we know it lasts at least years, and it may last half a lifetime in people, in the vulnerable people who get sensitized. Now, if we take the notion that some people might get sensitized to addictive drugs and to have a hyperactive dopamine system and combine that with the notion that maybe what dopamine is doing psychologically is not so much the pleasure of these drugs or other things, but the wanting for them. Then you can come up with the idea that a sensitized addict might be someone who has hyper-wanting, sort of excessive wanting that follows certain psychological rules we know about, um, even if they don't like the drugs, even if their liking is the same as it was in the beginning, or even if their liking has declined over time, they'll still have this excessive wanting for, for the drugs. That was... The notion that we offered as an addiction theory called the incentive sensitization theory of addiction. We offered that in the 90s. And it's probably safe to say that nobody believed it in the 90s.
0: And so when we think about, you know, sensitization in vulnerable, vulnerable people, people who are predisposed to becoming addicted to addicted addictive drugs, how specific are these are these effects? Is someone specifically going to be Ah, uh, predisposed to being addicted to a psychostimulant or an opioid, but not both? Is someone predisposed to uh, become addicted to drugs like this also predisposed to developing, say, you know, eating disorders or becoming addicted to non-drug rewards? like how how general is the system?
1: Well, in one way, it's quite general, and in a different way, it's quite specific. In the way it's general is that many drugs can induce sensitization. and once it's induced by one, The system also often shows what's called cross-sensitization to the other. That is, it responds in a sensitized fashion to the other, even though the other might just be taken for the first time on this occasion. So it's generalizable in the sense that there is cross-sensitization. On the other hand, this system can become psychologically very specific in its target. So it isn't that a sensitized person wants everything in life, that their motivation rises like a rising tide that floats all boats, so their motivation is everything. Career and family, and as well as drugs, it gets narrowly focused. Um, it can get narrowly focused. And so that only this one thing is wanted. So a person might only want one kind of drug or only a couple of kinds of drugs, for example. Um, general inputs, but kind of a neuropsychological output.
0: Mm-hmm. And so when you think about something like uh, drug addiction, how analogous is that to the notion of, say food addiction or people just binge eating and becoming obese because there's lots of tasty food around that's constantly tempting them is it is there is there a lot of overlap in the mechanisms there or or is there is there like a distinction between uh, these different kinds of stimuli, something that you ingest as food versus something that you take as a drug versus something that you drink or or, or what have you
1: well potentially, I think there is quite room for overlap, at least for some individuals, definitely overlap. If you asked me 15 years ago, I wouldn't have said that. Um, But what's happened last 15 years are two kinds of things. Um, One is neuroimaging evidence on food addiction and gambling addiction and such that suggests the same brain mesolimbic systems are involved and becoming hyperreactive in these individuals, say in a gambling addict. So it's drug cues that activate the system, but not Um, say, food, whereas in a binge eater who might have what could be legitimately called food addiction, um, it activates the food cues, but not the money cues. So again, this this hyper-wanting of these particular things. That's one kind of evidence that leads to the notion there might really be overlap. The second kind of evidence is something that happened beginning in the mid-2000s, early 2000s, which was the invention of a new medication for Parkinson's disease that was a wonderful godsend. It was the invention of what are called direct agonist medications for Parkinson's. Um, The old medication for Parkinson's was L-DOPA. And what L-DOPA, if a person takes it does, it it makes neurons in the brain generate natural dopamine, more natural dopamine. Even some neurons that aren't making any dopamine now, if we take a dose of L-DOPA, they'll start to make dopamine. So the brain gets kind of a flood of natural dopamine from any neurons that can still make it. That was a replacement therapy for Parkinson's. The new medications, the direct agonist medications, they're really more like fake dopamine. Um, They don't need natural dopamine. They can themselves, these molecules activate dopamine receptors, but not all dopamine receptors. They activate what are called specifically D2 and D3 types of dopamine system uh, receptors. There's five different types altogether, and these are two of those five different types, D2 and D3. And if a person takes these direct agonist medications that activates those receptors, it helps them a lot too with the Parkinson's symptoms. So it's a godsend. But in another sense, it's a diabolical medical experiment because in about anywhere from 15% up to, say, 45%, depending on the study you read, um, of patients who are taking these direct agonist medications, they start to develop compulsive motivations. They, that they never had before. Mm. Um, so they may develop compulsive gambling or compulsive shopping or compulsive pursuit of sex and pornography. In some cases, compulsive binge eating. In other cases, compulsive overconsumption of their medication. So they go to multiple neurologists and get multiple prescriptions for these dopamine agonist drugs and they overconsume the drugs. In some cases, compulsive hobbies like um, building up something in the garage but at 3 a.m. in the morning and you can't quite stop. Um, And if a person shows one of these compulsions, they're likely, quite reasonably likely to show a second and a third. So it's like a little family of of behavioral addictions can jump up in the same person while they're taking these dopamine-stimulating medications um, that they never had before. And fortunately for most people, if you stop taking the medication or if you at least turn down the dose, the compulsions go away, not Not for everyone, but for what usually. So it's really the dopamine stimulation. The fact that this can happen says first that dopamine stimulation, giving this artificial dopamine stimulation to vulnerable individuals can create addictions. Um, That it isn't that the people incredibly enjoy these things that they're doing. They don't, but they do incredibly want to do that and find it compulsive to, to do it. Um, they may find, be distressed psychologically because now they think of her a bad person if they're bankrupting their family or pursuing sex in inappropriate ways. Um, but uh, it's a compulsive one. The fact that it can happen is evidence again that really dopamine stimulation can create wants that don't have to be justified by likes. The second thing it tells us is that there is an overlap between some of these different compulsions because you produce compulsive gambling, perhaps, and compulsive shopping or binge eating in the same individual um, that says there's an overlap.
0: Mm -hmm. And is this, I mean, this makes me think about something like OCD, where you have an obsessive compulsive disorder. Is that, I I would guess that's mediated by some kind of increase in what the dopamine system is doing. Is that the case?
1: Well, it's a good question, and there's definitely evidence, neuroimaging evidence, that OCD involves sort of changed activation in striatum, neostriatum, and nucleus accumbens, these same dopamine targets, these same brain structures that receive dopamine, suggesting that there could be an overlap there. I I wonder about this question myself in terms of whether excessive incentive salience, excessive dopamine wanting is involved in the compulsion. Um, it is a real possibility that it is. On the other hand, there's another alternative explanation for OCD that's often invoked, which is that it's driven by anxiety rather than wanting to do something um, and that the the compulsions are engaged in as an attempt to damp down the anxiety. To the extent that anxiety is purely powering an obsessive or compulsive disorder, then we may not need excessive wanting and we we don't know if it's happening. But I don't think we have a really good, clear insight into whether it's happening yet, um, it is a possibility,
0: and what is the connection between you know ha- habits and behaviors generally and their ability to sort of uh, treat negative affective states like anxiety are you know how often is it the case that some of these behaviors that animals execute or some of the habits that people developed are actually a kind of uh, behavioral treatment for things like anxiety and depression what's the actual what's the actual connection there between the emotion state that they're trying to get rid of? And, and the actual behaviors that they're executing?
1: Well, there are comfort activities. Of course, people may have activities that we engage in to kind of reduce anxieties. And and adult rats who are stressed or mice who are stressed may start, may start to groom themselves, sort of face washing and body washing. And it's thought that's sort of a stress-induced kind of potentially activity that de- helps them to come down in arousal um, as they're doing it. On the other hand, most habits probably aren't really Most habits, the performance of them per se, are probably are not very powerfully reducing anxiety or even reducing it at all. There are habit theories of addiction in neuroscience today, and going back in psychology to the 1930s, there are habit theories of addiction. But generally, they don't invoke reduction of anxiety; they invoke a different kind of process from that.
0: And so, you know, it's it's very intuitive and easy to think about things like addiction in terms of going out and getting more of something, you go out and get more of a drug, or you go out and you eat more of the food that you like the taste of. But then there's also things like eating disorders, where people, I mean, effectively seem to become addicted to not eating or depriving themselves of something. And so, you know, if you think about something like anorexia, for example, do we know what's going on there to to get you to this weird place where you you really seem to want to deprive yourself of something that you would ordinarily naturally be motivated to go and get?
1: Well, I don't think we can claim that we know what's going on there. Um, This is a topic of study, and we'd love to know what's going on there. Um, I would say, I mean, it's an open empirical question to whether these kinds of psychological processes play a role. And I I don't actually study uh, anorexia nervosa, and I don't have human patient studies at all. So I'm not in the position to collect the evidence, but other people are. And there, are, there have been some suggestions that it might be not only a sort of dis, not diswanting of food, but actually kind of an excessive motivational salience attributed to foods. I mean, I've been told by psychiatrists who work with an, patients with anorexia nervosa that patients may become really fascinated and interested in food, just not wanting to eat it, um, but and also attached to other kinds of motivational salience processes, such as perception of their own body in a slightly fearful way um, that can involve a different sort of acts, different sort of process still involving brain dopamine systems in a, in a fearful way, but uh, sort of distorted body perception and distorted motivational significance of body perception.
0: So, you know, when we think about, um, so, so earlier we talked about how you know, the brain it, it does have this innate capacity to like things in general. There's systems that mediate the liking of things and motivational systems that mediate our general ability to want to go out and work for those things. Um, but there's also a lot of the specificity, as you said, in terms of you know, specific cues in the environment being specifically motivated um by uh, our given physiological state say so not only do we get hungry in general but we can become very hungry and motivated to go get something that is salty as opposed to sweet or vice versa so how do some of these um like homeostatic systems in the brain that are tracking you know what's in deficit and what we need more of to run our body how do they interact with the parts of the brain that we've been discussing the the dopamine motivational system and these sort of hedonic systems
1: they're very closely wired together. Um, a lot of homeostatic systems in the brain, systems of hunger and thirst and sex and aggression and other systems are sort of associated often with hypothalamic function, um, particular nuclei and particular neuron types in the hypothalamus. The rest of the brain circuitry is involved too, but the hypothalamus is sort of a hub for homeostatic motivations is thought. And there's heavily interact, there's heavy interaction and heavy projections in going back and forth. Between the hypothalamus and the mesolimbic dopamine system, the hypothalamus sends neurons projections to the ventral tegmentum, which is where dopamine neurons originate in the midbrain. Uh, ventral tegmentum and substantia nigra; um, those dopamine neurons project up to nucleus accumbens. And the nucleus accumbens sends projections back to the hypothalamus, um, and there's other projections converging from the reward system on hypothalamus too. So, so there's sort of massive interaction. And what this allows is for homeostatic states, physiological states to cause alleesthesia, changes in pleasure, but also to ch- cause what might be called incentive alleesthesia or, or motivational alleesthesia, which is to change the temptation power of particular cues for say food versus drinks versus other kinds of rewards. So that some become much more attractive at certain moments than others um, modulated by these physiological inputs.
0: And in terms of like you know, in terms of the overlap between some of these things, how is it that how is it that the brain is able to achieve this sort of level of specificity? So so if you're specifically deprived of, a, say, uh, salt in your diet or some type of nutrient in your diet, somehow the brain is tracking that rather than just a general calorie deficit, and then it's motivating you to go and find something that will speak to that specific deficit how does, how do some of these hedonic and homeostatic systems link up with the sensory systems and the cognitive systems in the brain that are going to, um, you know, that are going to have the information about, you know, what we've learned in our environment signals something and what we should go out and be paying attention to and these sorts of things.
1: Yeah. Well, that's an excellent question. And there are particular psychological rules that this system follows. Um, The dopamine wanting system, the kind of wanting it's producing, my colleagues and I call incentive salience. And what that means is a particular kind of want that is triggered by cues often. In animals, it's triggered almost exclusively by cues, smell of food, the sight of food. Side of a mate, that kind of thing. Um, in humans, it's often triggered by cues too, but we we have in hu- humans the ability to kind of imagine vividly a cue that's not physically present. So we can think about, imagine foods or other things we want and vivid imagery can activate the system just as well as a physical cue um, can. So we have these multiple routes to turn them on. What's happening is that they obey the rules that were were first described very presciently by a Canadian psychologist called Dalber Bindra, who had a an incentive theory of motivation in the 1970s um, that was based upon what he called Pavlovian cues. You know, Pavlov is a scientist who said you associate a neutral cue with something like food reward, and you form an association. Now the cue triggers the response um, that the food reward originally could. What Bindra said was, yes, these cues are very important in triggering these incentive motivational systems to want and like particular things, but they are modulated powerfully by physiological inputs. Um, let's think of a couple examples. So one, you mentioned salt and salt appetite. In our lab, we have studied salt appetite. And if, if we were in a state of sodium deprivation, like our ancestors might have been, um, and like deer and squirrels are and rabbits outside, what happens is a couple of hormones are secreted, aldosterone and angiotensin too treated by the kidneys, adrenal glands, and this can activate brain receptors to create the salt appetite. Now, ordinarily, a really salty taste, like say, swallowing a mouthful of seawater, is a bit disgusting. Um, If we take water from the Dead Sea, which is three times saltier than seawater, a mouthful of Dead Sea seawater is very disgusting. If we squirt a little dead sea water into a rat's mouth, it will show disgust gapes and head shakes and flails just as though we had squirted intense bitterness into its mouth. But in a state of sodium appetite, sodium depletion, when angiotensin II and aldosterone are reaching the brain, this activates salt appetite circuitry, which activates this brain reward circuitry, including um, turning on opioids and dopamines in the nucleus accumbens. And at this state, even dead sea saltiness becomes positively liked. If we squirt it into the rat's mouth, it'll respond to, to it with as though it were sugar rather than as though it were bitter or intense, disgusting saltiness. Now that's the, that's anesthesia, that's the liking. But what about wanting? Well, if we have a rat who learns that a lever pops out of the wall and this predicts when it's in a normal state, it predicts a squirt of dead sea saltiness into its mouth, the rat soon learns to avoid that lever whenever it pops out of the wall. If we have a second lever that pops out of a different wall, and it predicts a squirt of sugar water into the rat's mouth, the rat likes the sugar water. And now whenever the sugar lever pops out of the wall, the rat sort of jumps on the sugar lever and starts to nibble it. Um, This is an incentive salience-like thing. The cue has become, even though it's just a metal lever, the cue has become kind of an edible sugary-like thing to the rat, and it jumps and nibbles that lever. So the rat has learned to be repulsed by the salt lever and to jump and want this sugar lever. But now suppose the rat wakes up in a state of sodium depletion that was induced by an injection last night of hormones that turn on aldosterone and angiotensin signals. So the brain now is in this sodium depletion state suddenly for the first time in its life. It's never been in a salt appetite before. We know if it tasted Dead Sea saltiness now, it would like it and not find it disgusting. But the question we want to ask is how will we respond to the cue that's all that it's always been repulsed by, that's always predicted nasty, disgustingness? Will it have to relearn that the cue is now associated with a light thing? The answer is no, no, no. Bindra essentially predicted this, what would happen? What happens is the cue for the dead sea saltiness pops out, and today the rat jumps on that, that lever for saltiness and starts to nibble it, just like it would jump on the sugar lever, even though... At this moment, it has not yet tasted saltiness as liked. It hasn't yet had the Dead Sea saltiness infusion into its mouth on this sodium-depleted day. It instantly wants the lever that was formerly repulsive. So the temptation value of the Q can be absolutely modulated from moment to moment.
0: I see. So even though... Yeah. Even though the rat has only ever experienced that lever with a dislike or disgust reaction, it has never wanted to go taste that saltiness. And it's never actually been salt deprived before that very first time that you physiologically put the animal in state of salt depletion. Somehow that physiological state is able to change the brain such that the animal now wants to go and, and interact with that lever and likes the taste of it. So somehow, you know, the sensory information about that lever and its association with saltiness is instead of being linked up to the aversive state networks in the brain or whatever, is suddenly hooked up to the, the liking networks all in all in one shot.
1: Exactly. It's what I call incentive aliasthesia, where the temptation power of the cue is drastically changed, in this case, reversed from negative to positive by this new physiological state. This kind of thing is happening in people all the time, too. Um, So thinking of binge eating and um, neural things that connect our homeostatic hunger satiety circuits to this reward circuitry. One example that I find kind of powerful and and neat is is a neuroimaging study that was done at Cambridge University in England by a team who were studying um, people who were born congenitally lacking leptin. They lack the gene to make leptin these are people primarily belonging to certain families in Pakistan and Turkey and that region of the world. Um, they become very obese. They, As children, they demand food. They constantly demand food. They're not satisfied um, by eating a meal and they become very, very obese. These are leptin deficient people. Now, leptin is a is a molecule that's ordinarily produced by fat cells in our body and it acts as a satiety signal ordinarily. These people, since they lack the leptin, Um, They don't have the satiety signal, and it's it's understandable that they would overeat. Now, an interesting thing is what happens in the neuroimaging scanner. Um, If if hungry, ordinary people are popped into a neuroimaging scanner and shown photographs of tempting foods, delicious foods that we would like, this activates our mesolimbic system quite powerfully if we're hungry, looking at these tempting foods. If we just have a big meal, if we eat to satiety a big meal, and then we go back into the scanner, These same foods, looking at the photos, they don't really activate the reward system nearly as powerfully anymore. So satiety has reduced our response to the food cues. We don't want those food cues. We don't want the foods. A leptin deficient person looks in the scanner when they haven't eaten it, the food cues really powerfully activate their reward systems in the brain, of course. If that person, that leptin deficient person eats a full meal and now goes back into the scanner, and sees the food photographs, the photographs still activate its reward system in this leptin deficient person's brain as powerfully as they did when they were hungry, you know, before the meal. Um, They've eaten, they're loaded with calories, but their brain is still hungry. And it responds to food cues with this temptation power, intense wants, um, whether they've eaten or not. If you give an injection of leptin, artificial leptin or synthesized leptin to the person, so now this person who's never had leptin because they can't produce it, now they have exogenous leptin given to them in an injection. Now, if they eat the meal and go into the scanner, their reward system is not so activated by the food cues. Giving them the leptin. Now in the brain, leptin receptors are in the hypothalamus, but leptin receptors are also in the ventral tegmentum where the dopamine neurons lie. And there are connections from the hypothalamus to the ventral tegmentum. So leptin acting on those two kinds of targets central tegmentum near dopamine and hypothalamus sends this modulating signal to the dopamine reward circuitry that says you don't have to be tempted by food cues at this point. You're in this leptin high calorically satiated state. But if we lack that and the leptin deficient people give us kind of an insight into what's going on there, um, we see food could remain always tempting
0: I see so so as your physiological state changes, you go from being uh, hungry to sated or vice versa, as you become thirsty or as, as you become salt deprived, there are literally hormones and things that change, their levels change in your blood. They go into the brain and they directly change some of these neurons that in the dopamine reward system in, in other parts of the brain that we've been talking about. And that's how some of these switches are, are actually caused you know, when we talked about the rat who goes from being averse to the salt stimulus to liking it, it's because something, you know, it has been released into the bloodstream that's literally gone into the brain and sort of tuned these circuits differently.
1: Yes. Uh, might think of it as these chemicals are like, they're modulating the dopamine circuits. They're not sort of forcing it into a new level of activity themselves, but they modulate it. So now the system will respond differently to cues for foods versus cues for water and other things. Mm -hmm.
0: How much you know when we think about when we think about modern humans compared to um, our human ancestors? You know, thousands and thousands of years ago, or just to animals in a natural state. You know, an animal living out in the wild, um, in the middle of nowhere, is almost always going to be in some kind of deprived state, right? It's always going to be sort of struggling to find enough food. There's going to be times where it doesn't have enough salt. There's going to be other times where it hasn't had water in a while. And the animal is sort of always working to satisfy these deprivation states. And, you know, what I want to connect that to in humans is, you know, when you, when you're hungry and you eat something, The food not only tastes good and has pleasure coming from the sensory crop qualities of the food itself, but you're sort of getting rid rid of a bad feeling right the The feeling of being hungry is really uncomfortable. People get cranky and irritable um It's something that you want to get rid of and so the brain is is you know sort of coupling these negative feelings we get when we're deprived of something with the positive feelings we get when we get the thing that gets rid of that negative sensation. but I think the uh sort of overall picture I have in my mind is that you know animals in the wild are more or less always working to to get rid of these deprived states. And I'm wondering if that general observation in terms of that going on and, and some of the brain mechanisms that underlie that that we've been discussing, is that related to the fact that in human beings today, we live in states of basically perpetual abundance? Um, most of us, most of the time, always have more than enough food around any type of food that we want we're you know i'm never going thirsty i always have water that's available to me all of these physiological systems are never really in that deprived state that they would have been out in the wild so to speak and and we've got you know a rise in many neuropsychiatric conditions like depression do you think there's a connection between some of the some of the trends in in the rise of these psychiatric conditions in humans and the fact that We're, we're living in a state of perpetual abundance.
1: Well, I think the evolutionary mismatch idea that you described that we evolved in situations of scarcity and that has changed that sort of wired the brain to respond as though we're always in systems of scarcity, even when we're not and lead us to overeat and overconsume. I think that's a real plausible hypothesis and very widely held, um, How it relates to clinical depression, I'm really not qualified to say, but what I can say something about is how it relates to the nasty feelings of hunger and nasty feelings of other deprivations that you mentioned. Um, Nasty feelings of hunger and nasty feelings of thirst and other nasty things, they were thought to be the driving force in motivation for psychology and neuroscience from the 1930s through the 1960s and 70s, really, it was drive, aversive drives, hunger, thirst. Sex can even be thought of as a kind of aversive drive or aggression levels that, that become make one irritable and res, able to respond to provocations with aggression as an, as an aversive drive. And it was thought that drive reduction that is reducing these aversive states was the essence of motivation. Um, Neuroscience, the, the original neuroscience of motivation, looking at the original hypothalamic mechanisms of motivation, were absolutely sure that motivation was going to be caused by aversive drives and that the reason you eat was to reduce that aversive drive. Um, there was even I, a, a wonderful quote by Neil Miller, who was a famous neuroscientist at the time. He was recording from neurons in the hypothalamus and he thought they would go, they would fire a lot when we were hungry. And he thought if we ate a meal, it would reduce the firing of these hunger neurons. So they would be an reverse of feeling of hunger when we're hungry and eating food should reverse, would would lower them. And around the same time, it was being discovered that some electrodes in the hypothalamus were very rewarding. Um, Some would, a rat would work to turn on thousands of times and humans that were being implanted around the same time in some psychiatric wards would work to turn on these electrodes hundreds of times. and Neil Miller was sure that what was, must be happening, other electrodes were aversive in the hypothalamus. You would not want them turned on. Rats would avoid turning them on, different electrodes. Neil Miller was sure that the nasty electrodes, the ones that were, rats would not want to turn on and that a person would never stimulate, were neurons that were activating things like the aversive hunger drive. And he was sure that neurons that reward electrodes that individuals would work to turn on These were probably turning on neurons that were very different than maybe satiety neurons, neurons that could reduce the aversive drives. That's why they would be rewarding, why a person would work for them. So basically, he thought if he could record from the neuron that was avoided, that would be the hunger neuron, and he would see that neuron go down during the field. What turned out, though, very quickly, was that this was entirely opposite to the truth. What really was happening was that the reward electrodes that rats would ter- work to turn on, these were the same electrodes that would make them eat a lot. If you turned them on freely, they would turn on a hunger, apparently. The aversive electrodes that rats would never want to turn on were the electrodes that would stop them from eating. Now, it would stop them from eating, one well, would thought by reducing the aversive hunger drive, but they didn't want this ha- to happen. They wouldn't want this electrode to come on. So basically, it didn't make sense that reward electrode was also essentially a hunger turning on electrode. It didn't make sense by the old drive theory that was drives reversive or by drive reduction theory. This was the beginning that led to people like Dal Bindra, that Canadian psychologist who had the Pavlovian incentive theory, who who began to suggest, well, maybe motivation systems in the brain aren't wired around reducing these drives, these aversive drives so much, maybe they're wired more towards the rewards themselves out in the world and the cues that are associated with these rewards turned on. And what has happened in the intervening in the subsequent decades between 1970s and now is that it's just become very clear that yes, although hunger is aversive, Severe hunger is aversive and many other severe states are aversive. That's not the essence of their motivating properties for food. The brain is really, the hunger is modulating the reward system's response to food cues and such. This is what's really driving eating uh, much more than the aversive senses of hunger themselves. The the debate still goes on a little bit in neuroscience, but I'd say 90% of the evidence is very clear that it's incentive systems and not drive reduction systems that are motivating eating and other natural pursuits.
0: And when we think about, you know, when we think about trying to uh, use animal studies to think about humanity, to think about like addiction in humans, to think about overconsumption of food in humans, and things like this, to what extent does the animal research uh, tell us something very cleanly about what's going on with humans, and where does it where does it start to break down?
1: Well, it's always an empirical question: how how what will transfer from animals to humans, and we find what does and what doesn't. I have to admit, you know, when we were proposing the notion that dopamine was wanting and not liking based on our red experiments, it's fair to say that nobody believed us for at least the first 10 years of that theory throughout the 1990s. Um, in fact, I remember reading it a couple of times that people would say, well, the Michigan group, they think dopamine is wanting but not liking, but in humans, we're sure it's it's liking because it's turned on by these pleasant rewards, as indeed it is turned on by this pleasant reward. It wasn't really until the early 2000s, that studies in humans began to be done. Um, that's, well, I'll give you an example. Marco Leighton, a uh, uh, psychologist and neuroscientist up in um, McGill University in Montreal, would give people cocaine, pleasant drug. He would, in the hospital, he could give them cocaine. And simultaneously to giving them the cocaine, which turns on dopamine systems and which they rate as pleasant and that they and when they take some cocaine, they find that they want to now take more cocaine. Um, that's the thing about cocaine. It primes the appetite for cocaine. And so the person can want more at the same time that they're enjoying this first dose of cocaine. If he simultaneously suppressed their dopamine systems by giving them one of the dopamine blocking drugs, the neuroleptic antagonists that block the dopamine receptors, or if he suppress their dopamine system by original by just an hour before the the cocaine, giving them an amino acid cocktail that stops their brain from synthesizing dopamine for a few hours, um, suppress their dopamine. Then he gave them the cocaine in this dopamine suppressed state. What happened was they would rate that they liked the the cocaine absolutely normally, even in the dopamine suppressed state. The dopamine suppression didn't change their liking for cocaine, but it did suppress their ratings of wanting to take more cocaine. So Mm. if they didn't have the dopamine suppression, they'd take the dose and they'd like it. And they would want to take more very keenly. But if they had dopamine suppression, they'd take the dose and they'd like it. But and perfectly normally, but they didn't especially want to take more. Um, The dopamine suppression was changing that. That kind of evidence, um, together with evidence that Parkinson's patients who were not taking medication, so they had low dopamine, it was thought that they had anhedonia, that they didn't find things pleasant, but if you actually ask them to rate the pleasures of things like their favorite ice cream, they gave you absolutely normal pleasure liking ratings, even though they didn't really value the ice cream or anything else at that moment. Um, This began to accumulate, this kind of evidence that in people, yes, if you ask the right questions, it turns out that dopamine is mediating wanting but not mediating the liking for these same rewards just as it appeared to in rats in our lab 10 years earlier and had continued to to appear in our lab um, in dopamine experiments throughout the 2000s. So the human evidence began to converge finally with, or catch up really with the rat evidence. The original psychological insight that dopamine was wanting and not liking that came from rat experiments, 10 years later, human evidence began to confirm. Um, And the, than the latest Parkinson's medication, evidence that stimulating dopamine systems with the direct agonist turned on these intense wants, but not intense likes. You know, that was another piece of human evidence that converged. So some things do translate very readily from animals to humans. I think when we're talking about the basic mechanics of these reward systems, these which are evolutionarily ancient in mammalian evolution, they transfer quite well. What will be novel and new is of course, humans love to listen to music. We may enjoy art. We pursue all kinds of cultural pleasures and social pleasures that animals aren't going to pursue. These new things now can tap into our ancient brain reward circuitry um, through special human evolutionary and cultural uh, innovations. That they are like new keys into the old locks, but the locks themselves are operating by similar principles that they always have been and shared with animals.
0: Mm, I see. So, so the idea would just be that in human beings, where you know, you not only have the the classic normal basic uh, reward pathways and 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 simple addictions that can form, right? Like you can get a human being uh, addicted to opioids or cocaine, just like you can a rat. Um, but a human being can also become addicted to ideas and symbols, and there's sort of a a more of a cognitive component there. And the idea would be that even though there's this other extra layer of learning and associations that can hook into the circuitry, it's still hooking into something that's quite conserved even between a mouse and a rat and, and a human being.
1: Yes, to a surprising degree. Because I have to admit that 20 years ago, I didn't think this was the case at all. Um, 20 years ago, I thought the distinct human cognitive pleasures were entirely cortically based and different separate from the sensory pleasures of sex and drugs and foods and things that activate the mesolimbic subcortical system. In fact, with colleagues, psychiatrists here at the University of Michigan, I collaborated in a study about 20 years ago where we looked exactly for that in human beings thinking that humor... Funny jokes and cartoons that were humorous would activate their cortical systems and versus looking at food cues should activate their mesolimbic reward system. And we failed to find what we were hoping to see, this segregation of cognitive cortical pleasures from subcortical pleasures. The reason we failed, it turns out, as other subsequent FMRI studies by others over the last 20 years have shown, is that's because those cognitive pleasures are actually activating the same mesolimbic system um, to this surprising degree. That, uh, that the sensory pleasures did. So things like listening to one's favorite music. Um, in music students at McGill University, uh, Zator and colleagues there have shown that this activates their mesolympic system, including dopamine release. Uh, looking at art can do the same in some individuals who really enjoy art. Looking at the face of a loved one um, can activate the same mesolympic system. Even something as abstract perhaps as sort of happiness, hedonic happiness in general. Um, Richie Davidson at the University of Wisconsin and his colleagues have done neuroimaging studies in older adults asking people to rate their their contentment really with their lives, how satisfied they are, how happy they are with their lives. What they find is a remarkable linear relationship between their ratings of contentment in their life and activation of the nucleus accumbens when they're in the mesolimbic They're in the uh, neuroimaging scanner. The nucleus accumbens is the target of these subcortical dopamine systems. It's the last thing I would have expected 20 years ago to be associated with human happiness. But this is saying that possibly even that abstract happiness is related to recruiting these mesolimbic ancient circuitry. Um, That's where the evidence seems to be pointing. Now, it's not to say that cortical systems aren't also involved in all kinds of human pleasures. They are. Um, they absolutely are that's not a surprise what's a surprise is that the ancient subcortical systems also are and maybe possibly mediating the pleasure of those events that's that's the surprise to me
0: so asking a, a bit more of an abstract or theoretical question you know when we think about emotion and motivation you know why why do these emotional states exist at all why isn't why isn't everything just a chain of of reflexes that can get hooked up together um you know it, it seems like you know you could imagine that you know hypothetically things could be that way and yet they don't seem to be so so what exactly are these emotional states and, and what are they doing that differentiates them or necessitates that we have them such that everything's not just a, a chain of, of, uh, you know, associative reflexes.
1: Right. Well, the, well, that is a wonderful question. And it is really in a sense the question of neuroscience and psychology is it's, it's essentially the equivalent to the question of why are, is consciousness exists? Why do we have any awareness of things at all? Couldn't evolution have made designed brains to behave appropriately in the right situations without consciousness and many philosophers of science and others would say, well, yes, I would think so. So why is consciousness there? Um, We don't have a good answer to this question, (laughs) but given that consciousness is there. So we have conscious awareness of percepts and memories and feelings. Then the, the question is, so why have these particular kinds of emotional feelings, say both liking and wanting, why are they there in these embedded systems? And there there's some good answers and there's some slightly good answers um, is if one could think of an ancient creature that only had say, only a wanting system or only a liking system, I would vote for it to have the only the wanting system. because if if something wiggles that's potentially edible and you go and jump on it and eat it if you're a deep sea creature, ancient easy in go, that will feed you. be attracted, want it, eat it. Um, If a pheromone for a potential mate wafts over to you through the water and you're attracted over there to mate, um, that will help perpetuate your genes. Um, These simple wanting systems, even if you didn't like anything, would be enough, mesolimbic systems. And as I said earlier, there have been suggestions that mesolimbic dopamine systems might have evolved not just in mammals, but much, much earlier um, so that they might be shared the basic wiring diagram even in insects and crustaceans similar to mammals. Um, If that's the case, then ancient wanting systems did evolve long ago. Why have liking in addition? That has slightly good answers. We don't really have a good answer for why you would have pleasure in addition. But the answer that's been suggested that has, I think, some credibility by people like Paul Rosin at University of Pennsylvania and Tony Dickinson at Cambridge, England, is that maybe if we evolved originally wanting systems, they might've been fairly programmed for for innate targets, you know, the wiggly food or the pheromone. The brain would kind of have to have wired in advance the instructions of what to want, what to respond to, what to find a tempting cue, and only would respond to those cues. But suppose an individual could stumble upon something new that's really beneficial. If it could stumble upon something beneficial and process that through perhaps a liking feeling or a liking reaction, if that liking reaction could create, could recruit the wanting circuit to target a want on this new thing and cues associated with this new thing, you'd have a marvelously adaptive way to develop new wants based upon sort of fortuitous happy likes that had just happened by random on when something new was encountered. And you could improve considerably your psychological competence and your ability to thrive and pass on genes in this world. So they're suggesting the liking system is sort of a a general purpose way of taking mechanisms that evolve for particular wants and giving them new targets that are adaptive too. I think that's plausible um, and I haven't heard a better solution. Still, one could say, well, why do you have to feel the pleasure? And this is a, a question that we do not have an answer to as far as I know.
0: Mm-hmm. but it 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 does feel like an intuitive explanation to me. I guess I guess the idea is if I'm hearing you right if everything was just sort of hardwired, you would have to, uh, in everything would be innately specified. Everything that you want to go out and want to go out and get in the world needs to be hardwired. And that would really only work if an organism is living in a static, unchanging environment. Um, but as soon as the environment becomes dynamic and it changes as, as it is for most organisms, um, you have to be able to learn new associations and you have to, uh, uh, steer or or direct the attention of those motivational systems, to things you've never encountered before. And so maybe the sort of affective side of this is a way to train these motivational systems when you live in a variable environment where you have to learn what to go out and get and what to avoid because it can't be innately specified.
1: Absolutely. And the system follows the rules that Dablar the Canadian psychologist who proposed this Pavlovian theory of motivation, specified decades ago. I mean, I say Pavlovian theory of motivation, that's what it was called because it was cues evoking motivation. But another name that you could give it would be a flexible wanting system for developing new beneficial wants. That's exactly what it is. When you pair random neutral cues, which have no motivational significance to begin with, with some beneficial event, an unconditioned stimulus, and that's emotionally, hedonically arousing, liked um, then those cues can become attractive too, and you'll pursue those things. Even things like hunger, which is, of course is innate as a motivation, um, many aspects of hunger and thirst um, still interact with these learned cues, the foods that particularly attract us, we've culturally learned about. And even in animals, there are studies in the 1960s, kind of classic studies on little newly hatched baby chicks, little chicks. And the question was, did they recognize water as something to drink right away or did they kind of respond to it as a glittering surface heck it a couple times because it glitters and then find well, oh, that's water mm-hmm. good well, i'm thirsty and the results were suggesting that really they kind of had to learn that the sight of water was water um by spike this being attracted to just the glitter then they'd pursue it they wouldn't pursue it before having that experience.
0: i see so even things that seem like they uh would likely be innate uh do do often have a learned component to them
1: Absolutely, that's the
0: thing. And what about like, so, So you know, as, you, as we navigate our environments and we, you know, build up this massive library of sensory and cognitive associations for things that, you know, are tied to food or drink or, or anything else, to what extent can those learned associations and those sensory cues start to actually override the basic homeostatic system? So for example, you know, you don't have to learn to be hungry in general. Um, that's, that's sort of baked right into the system. But you learn that all of the different cues in your environment, all the different signs for restaurants and commercials on TV and all this stuff is associated with food. To what extent can those learned associations and those sensory representations actually become a stronger driving force than, than the homeostatic part of this?
1: Well, they powerfully can. And it kind of goes back to the evolutionary mismatch theory that you described earlier, the notion that we evolved in, in environments of scarcity and but now we're in an environment of abundance and we've carried brain and psychological traits for the scarce environment to this. Um, it is, but what, what is, it is is that now we are surrounded by luscious foods virtually all the time or within minutes and we walk out the door and they're delicious foods far more attractive than our ancestors evolved with. So we may not be particularly hungry physiologically, yet they are attractive. And might we might be, feel peckish and be willing to eat just another one or another one another, um, even though we have high satiety actually physiologically within us. It's not just foods, of course, but many things can, we we have this ability to be tempted by cues for which we have no need for the actual underlying word. Um, our brains are organs, are organized to be incentive temptation machines and they evolved to do it very adaptively but we are such powerful incentive temptation machines that we can be triggered into addictions we can be triggered into overeating and obesity and to a number of slightly maladaptive pursuits
0: what are uh what are some of the things that you guys are working on in the lab right now
1: well we're always interested in the mechanisms of liking and wanting so we're still researching these hedonic hotspots and how they produce pleasure-liking. We're using brain optogenetic techniques to turn them on now rather than just the drug microinjections. But what's most interesting, perhaps, uh, that we're looking at now is looking at the wanting system and seeing how powerful it is to produce even maladaptive wants. And the example that we have came again as kind of a surprise to me, lots of surprises in my career, is wanting what hurts, the induction of wanting what hurts. Now, this is kind of meant to be a prototype of addictive motivation as the incentive sensitization theory views addiction, which remember is that an addicted individual, if they're hyperreactive in their dopamine system to drugs and drug cues, they could want it excessively, even if they don't like it. What that is to say is that liking can be detached from wanting. If it can truly become detached from wanting, is it possible then to actually come to want even what would hurt you? In addiction neuroscience today, in many animal studies in addiction neuroscience, one, one criteria that's often used of as a test of is an animal like a rat addicted to a drug is whether it will be willing to incur an aversive, say, electric foot shock in order to get the drug If it is, then it's going to pay that price of pain in order to get the drug. That's a kind of a measure of addiction. So pain is always thought of as a repulsive thing, but it is possible. What we're finding is we're we're using optogenetic stimulation of the central nucleus of the amygdala. The amygdala is kind of famous as a sort of learning motivation interface. It's perhaps most famous for learned fears, but it also participates in learned desires. And the reason we're in the amygdala is because it helps to learn and focus the motivation on the particular thing. So we're trying to get the addictive-like quality where a motivation becomes very intense, very focused and detached from liking. If we we pair stimulation of the central nucleus of the amygdala, which is a striatal-like part of the amygdala, like the nucleus accumbens, it has some neurobiological and psychological features similar to the nucleus accumbens. One of the psychological features is little neural stimulations in the central nucleus of the amygdala can generate intense motivations, including intense ones. We pair if we pair uh, the laser stimulation of neurons in the amygdala with something nice, like say a sugar pellet, in a rat who's choosing between sugar and cocaine. This rat will become a sugar addict who pursues only the sugar and ignores intravenous cocaine. If we pair this amygdala activation in a different rat with cocaine but not sugar, that rat will become a cocaine addict and ignore the opportunity to earn sugar. Normal rats in this situation do choose both, about 50-50, get some cocaine, get some sugar, get some more cocaine, some more sugar. Why not? They're both freely available. But we can create the addict by this pairing. Now, if we take in a third rat The same amygdala pairing, but now we pair it with something nasty, potentially nasty, which is an electrified shock rod that sticks out of the wall of the chamber just a few inches. Um, Just a little metal poking rod that sticks out of the chamber. It's immobile. The rat does not have to touch it ever. The chamber is large enough you can entirely avoid it. But most rats, out of curiosity, will touch even if they have no amygdala stimulation. They'll touch once. What is this? Maybe twice. They'll get an electric shock then they'll stay back, they'll stay as far away from that rod as possible, and they'll start to kick sand that's in the chamber, they'll kick it towards the rod, it's called defensive burying. It's an anti-predator behavior that rodents will show to things like scorpions or snakes um, kicking sand at them to drive them away sometimes, and they'll bury the rod. But if we take a rat who has the central nucleus of the amygdala stimulation, and we pair it whenever the rat gets within a centimeter of this rod and touches the rod, what happens is the rod gets a shock and jumps back, It comes back and gets a second shock and jumps back. It comes and gets really interested in the rod and hovers over it eagerly and sniffs it and gets a shock perhaps on its nose and jumped back. Comes right back to the rod and is just fascinated by this rod. And we'll get a shock after shock after shock. Um, If they reach 20 shocks, we take them out because we don't want them to get any more shocks, but God knows how high they would go. They're just attracted to this rod that hurts them. Now, they're really attracted. It's not an aggressive response. If we say to the rat, that's attracted to this rod will protect you from yourself, we will protect you from this rod. We'll put this big block barrier between you and the rod so you can't see it. You'd have to stand up on your hind feet to peer over the barrier if you wanted, and you'll have to jump and climb over it if you wanted to get to the rod. What is, you're safe, just stay on the safe side. What the rat does is it climbs over, jumps over, and gets to the rod and touches it. We grab the rat gently. As soon as it touches the rod and got a shock, pull back to the safe side, say, okay, you're safe again. You can now stay there. It jumps back, it climbs back to the rod. it will climb over five times in a 15-minute test, climb over this barrier and get shocks each time, sometimes multiple shocks each time. It seeks out and wants the rod. It also wants other cues associated with this rod that hurts it. Um, So if we perish sound, every time it gets a rod shock, every time it touches the rod and gets a shock, it also hears a distinct sound like beep. Ordinary rats do not want to hear a sound that predicts shock they will avoid a sound that predicts shock. They don't want to turn on. These rats who have been attracted to the rod, if we took take them into a different situation where there's no rod, but there is a way, a lever they can press to hear the shock associated sound if they want, they press the lever many, many times. Give me that shock sound again. Give me the shock sound again. They want the cues associated with this thing that hurt them. This is a very Bindra-like incentive salience feature. They want These are tempting cues. Now, this want is for the thing that hurts them. It's mediated by, it's, it's mediated, it's caused by the pairing the amygdala stimulation, but it's actually mediated not just by the amygdala. At the moment, the rats are attracted to that shock rod. If we look at their brains just a moment after, we find that their whole mesolimic system is activated as they're approaching the shock rod, just as it would be if they were approaching a sugar pellet or if they're approaching cocaine and eagerly wanted those things. They literally want the rod that shocks them in the same way that has um, that that we want to reward, it's creating an addictive-like motivation focused on the rod and its cues for something that hurts them. That is sort of the proof of principle, almost stronger than I would have believed myself before we saw this. That wanting can detach so completely from liking that it can even cause one to want what hurts one. Um, if it can happen for a shock rod, it can happen for addictive drugs and other addictive situations that aren't nearly as aversive as a chakra. Um,
0: yeah, and I suppose that would have a lot of implications for things that we could tie this to in human beings that, you know, uh, under normal circumstances, normal ecological conditions you're almost always going to have the wanting tied to liking in the sort of normal, intuitive way that we all experience these things attached to each other. But in these artificial conditions, or you can imagine if someone is just in a very unfortunate or unlikely natural condition, you can in fact have the wanting tied to something aversive, something that literally hurts you. And then you continue doing that over and over again, pretty much just like you would if you were compulsively addicted to something like cocaine.
1: I totally agree. The, the laser and the amygdala that we use in the lab, that's sort of a, a sledgehammer approach to turn on the system, but a similar neural event could happen in a person, just sort of more subtle neural activations of the amygdala and mesolimbic circuitry because of their own sort of susceptibility to inducing these neural changes and responsiveness, mm-hmm. again, the 10 to 30% who become addicted in the situation, triggered by situations that make them attracted and create addictions that aren't powered by pleasure and yet are compulsively wanted and very narrowly focused sometimes
0: and um, and do you know why the central amygdala is able to do this type of thing is it directly talking to some of these other systems in ways that that make sense
1: well what what we know is that the the central nucleus of the amygdala is sort of a uh, a learning motivation interface. It, it does learn about things that are happening in the world and it makes them motivationally significant and powerful, whether it's a fear or in this case, a desire. Um, and it can focus the motivation. Whereas if we did a doping manipulation, we might change motivation more broadly or just change pre-existing motivation. With the amygdala simulation, we can create the new motivation. We can control what its target is cocaine or sugar pellet or chakra, we can narrowly focus the motivation on it so and, it, and it's all doing it by sort of recruiting the dopamine so you might think of in a sense the amygdala is here acting like a lens for the illumination that the dopamine system generates if the dopamine system is a lamp that's generating motivational light um the the amygdala can focus that light narrowly like a flashlight narrow beam on on a pinpoint target like and create it wanting for just that one thing that's why we're looking at those interactions
0: you know given that you study all this stuff wanting liking how all of this stuff works has this influenced how you like go about your own life in terms of how you sort of uh train train your own brain to to do things effectively
1: well it's it's it it gives a little bit of an insight i don't think it's changed my life but it may add a, a little bit of insight and knowing some of the rules um by which the system operates um can, can sometimes be handy you know so for example one, one rule by which the system operates is that often it's primed by the last taste or the last drink um, of something and if you'd really rather not overconsume but you have this urge at the moment in the at the end of the meal or while you're in a dr- drinking session um to continue if you know, pause if you can pause For 15 minutes or so, um, often these urges will decline. They are sustained, they are built up by an interaction of the system interacting with the cues and with the reward, um, and they can pause. So turning away from the table is is a way, I think there was a a French philosopher who wrote, if you want to maintain a, a, a reasonable body weight and not become obese, You want to step away from the table while you're still just a little hungry. If you do that, although it's painful at that moment because you're still a little hungry, you'd like to continue. You may find 15 minutes later that you're not hungry, actually, after all, um, and uh, the urge has gone away. The system has rules of that sort.
0: Um, Are there any final thoughts or things you want to reiterate um, based on everything that we discussed?
1: Well, um, no, I would just say that uh, in my own personal experience and career, it's really been surprise after surprise after surprise. And uh, Sometimes that involved the loss of my favorite hypotheses. Like, I really did want dopamine to be pleasure-liking when we started out. I was, it just made so much sense. There was so much evidence for it, and it was disappointing that it wasn't. But sometimes there's a silver lining, you know, and that uh, the, what we learn is that the truth is almost always more interesting our original hypotheses. Um, Sometimes the truth is counterintuitive and absolutely against our original hypotheses, but the truth is fascinating. And if we follow it in this kind of follow the evidence, sometimes we learn new hypotheses, which while surprising may give insight.
0: All right. Well, Professor Kent Barrich, thank you for your time.
1: Thanks a lot. I've enjoyed talking with you now.
0: This episode is supported in part by The Amino Company. They specialize in making science-backed amino acid products that you can mix into any drink. Their products contain a mixture of essential amino acids, the building blocks of proteins in the body, as well as other nutrients including minerals like iron and electrolytes like potassium. Your body is constantly repairing damage and your muscles and tissues need the right mix of amino acids and nutrients to do this effectively. One thing I like about AminoCo is they actually conduct clinical trials to determine what their products really do. They have a variety of formulations and Engineered for different purposes, and my personal favorite is one called Heal, which has been shown to be three times more efficient at triggering muscle growth and repair than other protein sources. It helps maintain healthy inflammation levels and preserve muscle mass during periods of inactivity. I mix this product into the water bottle I bring to the gym and consume it before, during, and after my workouts, and I have felt a noticeable difference in my performance during those workouts and my recovery times from soreness and fatigue afterwards. Their products are keto friendly, soy free, vegetarian or vegan, gluten free, and non GMO, so they are compatible with almost any diet or lifestyle. You can support the podcast and try Heal or any of their other products by using the discount code MIND when you visit aminoco.com MIND. You will get 30% off your purchase. If you work out regularly or do intensive exercise, I recommend trying Amino Co's products. I get a lot of companies reaching out to me about advertising and I only end up using and liking a small percentage of the products that I see. So check out aminoco.com MIND and use the code MIND to try these products today for 30% off.